speed of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. It's a worldwide phenomenon. That UFO podcast is powered by Zencaster. Zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. The open beta strives to put the power of studio quality remote video production into the hands of anyone with a story to tell. Features include HD video recording, studio quality sound, chat and footnotes. All running right from your browser so you can record from anywhere without ever installing anything. Check out the links in the show description to find out more. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. This is the first in a new series profiling some of the main players in the world of UFOs over the last few years particularly. Kickstarting with none other than Tom DeLong. Or is it Delonge? I'll bring in Dan, who's joining me for this series. Dan, you've just corrected me on the pronunciation <laughs> of his surname after, well, actually, minus seconds. We hadn't even started yet. It's technically, I mean, he said it Delong his whole life. Uh, it was during a, a tour in the last, like, I want to say last decade where someone told him it's actually Delonge and he made a big thing about it. So you can pick either. That's fair, because I've said my own surname many different ways over the years as well. McRylan, right? McQuillan was the weirdest one, M apostrophe Q, and I thought that was really that really classy. But yeah, we're going to talk about Tom DeLong, and I've thought about doing this for quite a while, doing like a profiling series. I always say that there's a lot of things within this subject that I don't fully understand, or bits and pieces that I've not managed to fill in the gaps, and you kind of you work around it as you go along. So this is a bit kind of therapeutic and cathartic, I think, for me, if those are the right words to use, because a lot of the stuff I've been kind of researching properly like almost call myself a researcher on this one almost because i'll get stuff wrong and people will call me out on it it's been really interesting to see tom DeLong and how he has evolved and changed as the years have gone on initially it was going to be let's talk about tom DeLong and his claims and then as as i dug into it and we talked about it it was it's worth doing a few parts on this and even today I collated all the listener suggestions and questions just on Tom DeLong before TTSA or before Two of the Stars. And there's a whole other show there as well. So what we're going to do is kick off part one. We are going to talk about Tom DeLong and his years preceding to the Stars Academy and everything that happened from December 2017 with the New York Times. That'll all be encompassed within part two. So part one, Dan, I'm going to kick off just with a little bit of background on Thomas Matthew DeLong. He was born December 13th, 1975, and as we know, is an American musician, singer, songwriter, author, record producer, actor, and filmmaker, possessing a distinctive nasal singing voice, famous for the Where Are You? He is the lead vocalist and guitarist of rock band Angels and Airwaves, which he formed in 2005, and was the co-lead vocalist, guitarist, and co-founder of the rock band Blink-182. 
Blink one eight. I was going to say Blink one eight two, but it's Blink one eighty two, isn't it? That I, I got that. Everyone right. says it different. They always make a joke about it. Uh, Blink one eight two, one eighty two, hundred eighty two. Uh, Tom one said it was one eighteen uh, two. Just just to mess with people. <laughs> okay. So yeah. So Blink one eight two from its formation in nineteen ninety two until its uh, until his dismissal from the group in twenty fifteen. DeLong grew up in the suburbs of Poway, California, where he embraced skateboarding at an early age. DeLong received his first guitar. He began writing punk rock songs. He formed Blink one eight two with bassist Mark Hopis and drummer Scott Rayner during his high school years. The band created a following in the mid-90s through independent releases and relentless touring, particularly in their home country and in Australia. They signed to MCA Records in 1996, and their second album, Dude Ranch, which was released in 1997, featured the hit single, Damn It, a very teen angsty tune for all of us growing up who were into Blink. Yeah, and this is actually where um, the advance that Tom got from Dude Ranch was how he bought his first computer, and he bought it purposely to begin researching UFOs. So he'd been into it for a while uh, by 1997. So if you're listening to this and you bought Dude Ranch back in 97, you helped kickstart all did, of what's yeah. happening right now. That's one way to look at it. I'm a huge fan of the the song Damn It as well. That's one of those songs growing up that I would listen to. So, you know, your your formative teenage years, that was a big influence on. The group had an even bigger success with Enema of the State in 1999, which featured three hit singles and went quadruple platinum in the US, selling upwards of 15 million copies worldwide. Blink-182 scored a number one album with 2001's Take Off Your Pants and Jacket, probably my favourite Blink album, I'll I'll put my hand up to that. DeLong experimented with post-hardcore music on Boxcar Racer, which formed into a full-fledged band in 2002, but dissolved the following year. Dan, on Boxcar Racer, uh, that wasn't a great time for Tom, was it? If uh, you had a little bit of info on that. Yeah, it was. <clears throat> it kind of came about. Tom Tom had been writing a couple of things solo uh, and kind of trying out some, just expanding his musical prowess. And this is kind of the origin point for, uh, because Tom brought Travis on to drum on Boxcar Racer, they, this was the point where Mark kind of started feeling a bit left out and thought that he was trying to leave them behind maybe. So years later when that breakup happens this is kind of the origin point but something else important around here is that this album boxcar race was actually written from a hospital bed uh, with a guitar tom tom had issues with the slip disc in his back because he wore a guitar real low uh like all the teenage punksters do and it actually plagued him for years and he had issues with painkillers um and it was clearing up those issues with painkillers that kind of coincided with his more optimistic love and light approach with angels and airwaves blink's untitled fifth studio album in 2003 reflected a change in tone within the group and the group broke up in 2005 following internal tension spearheaded by delong in the aftermath of blink's breakup in 2005 he formed angels and airwaves which has released five studio albums and has evolved into an art project encompassing various forms of media delong reunited with blink 182 in 2009 releasing new music and touring frequently before parting ways with the band again in 2015 in addition to tom's musical career he has also managed business ventures that he founded including macbeth footwear and technology and design firm mod life he helped score and produce the 2011 science fiction film love and has multiple film projects in development we'll get to those in part three he released his children's book the lonely astronaut on christmas eve in 2013 dan that nicely sums up tom's 
life and very successful in many many areas of life as as that tells us and i hope that gives people some background as to the man that has then gone on to have a huge impact somehow in the world of ufos before december 2017 and that press conference where where lou came to the forefront and the new york times article was released to the stars came to be as well which we're going to talk about here and with their, their media division i want to kick off asking dan why Tom DeLong? thinking of what we've just discussed in a few minutes there, a punk rock star with an image that's famously of comedy, immaturity. If I, I grew up a Blink-182 fan, you grew up a Blink fan, a Tom fan, and a lot of his ventures as well. I remember them in American Pie. We remember watching the music videos growing up, you know, um, taking the mick out a lot of different bands, you know, Backstreet Boys, all that kind of stuff in their music videos, being a huge band worldwide, but never taking themselves too seriously. It's a hell of a leap to go from what he was doing very successfully. You know, his net worth is something that I think we checked, was it 50 to $90 million, somewhere in that range? Quite a bit, yeah. Yeah, he was he was comfortable. He, he's got some cash to throw about. How did Tom end up getting involved in the world of UFOs? I think this is where Tom's journey as a, as a kind of musician, kind of touring around the world, kind of comes into it. As, as he's traveling, he's not, you know, just sat in a van. These were the days before smartphones and things like that. So he's chewing through UFO books. Everywhere he goes over the world, he meets people like Valet and um, various other people who are researching the phenomena. So for about 27 years, he's gathering all of this information and very much like you and I kind of starting to start to have an idea of the puzzle, so to speak. The, the bit that intrigues me is Tom's uh, brother was in the uh, armed, armed forces and he through through him, uh, Tom actually ended up playing uh, or Blink One Eight Two rather, I should say, played on board the Nimitz in Kuwait Harbor in two thousand three, uh, which is of course is only like it's approximately a year before the Nimitz would encounter the Tic Tac off the coast of uh, California. Um, so there's there's like a little serendipity there, which always kind of tickled me. Um, Just checking, Dan, because uh, obviously you sent me that clip earlier. I think PJ Hughes on his YouTube has a video right, yeah. of of the appearance. You're not claiming that the material used to bait ufos or uaps was blink 182 the band are you <laughs> no i'm not no <laughs> but um i thought that was interesting that pj uh you, you know it's just a youtube name so i i would want to ask pj if he was there but uh yeah it's it seems so uh i thought that was pretty cool a little nugget to come across um during this time as well um tom launched a website called strange times which similar to a lot of what we have today it the aim was for it to be a, a one-stop shop you could go to to get all of your UA, UAP and strange news from around the world. Now, that wasn't super successful, but it was around this time, like we're talking 2010, 2011, that, that Tom's really kind of starting to step up with his interest. And instead of just being a musician, he's kind of, he wants to make movies, which ended up being the love movie, which was actually a really kind of interesting film. Um, it's about an astronaut that's stuck in space as humanity is wiped out. And he's kind of left there reflecting. Very 2001 A Space Odyssey. Won a few awards. Uh, that was made by Will Eubank, who made Underwater, which I'd also recommend. A very cool, cool film. I'll add the link to Strange Times within the the description of the podcast. It's not actually up anymore. It's a, it's a holding page for, for a series, a kid series that he's developing now. So... Uh... 
Is that what it is? So I'm on Strange Times. It now takes you to strangetimes.tothestars.media. Um, so is that the Tom DeLong Paranormal series, Strange Times in Development at TBS? So is that in development now? It is, yeah. That's been in development for a while. So the the Monsters of California movie that he's making is meant to be a more adult version of that, just kind of teens around San Diego and California, learning about myths and monsters and everything that goes bump in the night. So in true to the stars fashion, when you click for more info on that, it takes you to the to the stars shop. So yeah, so maybe there's not a whole lot in that link, but I'll put it up for people nonetheless. <laughs> um, we'll we'll get to talking about to the stars shop and other ventures again, probably in part two. Uh, yeah, no doubt. So it was just after that that the kind of the blink reunion happened, and Tom was very not not committed, but he just had a lot of stuff going on. They the record labels needed albums within like you know five months, and he was like, "Well, I've got these deals with authors, and you know I'm making this movie, and I can't kind of go back on those contracts." So he he eventually parted ways with Blink, but this whole time he's knocking on doors and talking to people, and as we found out, um, it was early in the 2017 the WikiLeaks um, event happened where up until that point tom had been making all of these claims and saying he'd been talking to these people and then the wikileaks leak happens and suddenly we see that he's talking to people like john podesta um who you know is quite a big deal in in the white house um so that that then leads to tom kind of once he connected with certain people it, it was a party at Lockheed I believe it goes back to um he kind of started throwing his way around a little bit uh he was asked to just meet someone as the musician Tom DeLong, um and he just threw the condition out there that he would only meet this person if he could have you know 10 minutes alone in a room with him to to pitch him a project turns out that project was an early version of Secret Machines it was a documentary being made for Vice a very kind of their audience is very teen uh, very young skewing um so Tom's plan was initially basically to get the youth on board with this. And and I don't think that's gone away. But what has changed is his very, his low-key approach, kind of almost him, you know, filming a documentary with hidden cameras, became unidentified where they were sat in the room with proper lights, a proper setup, you know, Lou Elizondo with them, um, things like that. He, he got legitimized at a certain point um, by the team. Now, You've brought us probably quite nicely right up to 2015, 16, where a lot of the, the rest of the conversation goes from. Um, something we talked about in preparing for this, and, and you told me to make a note to mention it, I just threw it out there, was as we're going to discuss these, the consistency over the years of Tom DeLong's claims is is pretty strong that as I listened to various different interviews and, and read some article quotes and stuff that you'd saved from Twitter over the years, and he's not... For all he's he's jumped about and he's he's spoken on a lot of different things that have just at times seemed like he's talking about this, he's talking about this, he's talking about this. He's been pretty consistent with what he has talked about and he's kept going back to the same ideas and theories, which is really interesting given he never I suppose we all associate him with his relationship with like Lou Elizondo and, and Chris Mellon and, and those guys when Two of the Stars came out, uh, Jim Semivan, Steve Justice, Hal Putov and, and and numerous others. But back at the start, Tom DeLong and uh, I'll put up the actually I'll give some credit here to engaging the phenomenon because that was one of the ones I watched. James Iandoli's channel, I'll give the link to that particular interview or, or setup piece that he done where he talks about Stephen Greer 
meeting Tom DeLong and Tom DeLong on interviews, uh, it says it was for Open Minds TV at the time, was talking about how he flew Stephen Greer and his daughter out to a Blink-182 gig and he flew out various other people and he claims around then things started getting weird when he was given the Disclosure Project's VHS tapes. Is that something you've seen anything about, Dan? Yeah, um, the connection between Tom and Greer, that came, I mean, we're talking pre-2015 pretty much. Um, there's there's an interview around 2015, 2016, where Tom talks about uh, weird encounters he had in the desert. He says that he, he was out in the field with a prominent ufologist, and he kind of talks about the videotapes and the disclosure project enough that you can kind of th- say, yeah, that that's Greer. Um, they engaged the protocols, nothing happened. But then 2, 3 a.m., he was woken up with a lot of voices kind of chatting around his tent in the morning, found out that everyone had experienced this. And and that kind of scared Tom a bit away from it. You know, the way the way that he talks about it, it was a really I, I think it shocked him, the response he got. But it was at that point that. Tom Tom talks about in in I, w- I want to say it's coast to coast, he basically says that he felt that Greer was kind of using Tom's fame. To, to get his message out um and it seems no. to like that <laughs> so what what you're seeing is you know in some people's eyes it, it's tom DeLong, the rock star being used to get a message out by different camps of people um only tom kind of pushes away the, those things that are that muddy the waters so to speak um and he ends up with and we have to remember that ttsa is the b team because Tom describes his A-team as being lost when WikiLeaks happened and that faucet shut off. Let me just, I'm going to just quickly put in there, Dan, because we've talked about this before and people people may not have heard or, or forgotten. I've been sarcastic there talking about Stephen Greer. I have said before, I reckon there was probably a time where Stephen Greer had the best intentions and had a message that he wanted to get out there. I don't think the Stephen Greer of 20 and 30 years ago is the same person that that does what he does now and has the same message or same same motivations for what he does. So maybe at the time when they when they got together that there was a a pure intent. But like you say, Tom feels that even then he was being used by by Doctor Greer. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a credit to Tom there as well for because we all kind of we we all come across Greer in this field and he he walks a good walk, you know. Um, but. The difference is that Tom just had the money to go into the desert with him. And, you know, I, I imagine he probably got the experience for free, but he still had the time and the money to go do that and indulge it. And and at a certain point realized, just like the rest of us, that when Greer says, oh, I was briefing so-and-so, so-and-so, actually it turns out it was a dinner party and it wasn't really a briefing. And th- those things are being indulged. Um, when, when you're Tom DeLonge and you're going to meet, you know, Luis Elizondo, those things fall away very quickly because they're just not worth talking about, you know? Those those early conversations and forward, they're very intriguing. And I'm going to re- reference some of the, the early Fade to Black interviews and other pieces. A lot of the conversations are very much along the lines of, uh, I was in a secure building with some high-ranking people. I was speaking to two officials. You know, uh, there were some people that I was talking to, but I can't go into any more details than that. There's a lot of teasing and suggestive talk, but Tom DeLong is a creative soul and a storyteller through various different platforms, like we've said. Do you think that comes into a lot of how he talks about the UFO subject? It sounds like he's got the most amazing outline for a great story, 
but a lot of the major details are missing that really get people to buy in that maybe from the mainstream or from the outside. And I suppose even referencing that that Joe Rogan interview where we touched on this, we, we talked about it, didn't we, that I watched a supercut someone's put together on YouTube and it's one minute of Tom DeLong from the, the notorious Joe Rogan interview of Tom DeLong saying, yeah, I can't talk about that. I can't say that person's name. I spoke to two people that I can't go into any more detail about. That doesn't come across well on a mainstream platform. I suppose any of us now would listen to three hours of Tom on Coast to Coast or or Joe Rogan or any show and be really interested. But wanting that mainstream and the general public to get interested in this topic, it doesn't help unless you can embellish or analogize or speak about the topic in at least some detail or compare it to other things. What's frustrating about Tom is as you listen to those early interviews and conversations, there's so much he can say, which at times you think, wow, how can he talk about all of this? How can he divulge all this information? And I've got some examples that we'll go through. But then because other he has times, no clearance. <laughs> yeah, like you said that that was that was his quote, wasn't it? I've got no clearance, so I yeah, can. Yeah. But then there's so much. Dan's hit the mic, take a shot. Um, there's so much that he doesn't go into detail of that really would back up a lot of those claims. And I get it must be a really hard line to walk, but is that just the the pitfalls of someone like Tom being involved in the position that he, he finds himself? Yeah, I think so. Um, you, you know, you look at his work with Angels and Airwaves and each, each project has kind of been in front of where the public discussion was going to go. Um, you, you know, he, he started kind of talking about love, and we all know that that love and light kind of language, that love is a tangible thing that kind of science is yet to understand. Um, we, we all know that exists in the community and he kind of put that out into the world while he's talking about nuts and bolts things. And if you compare those old conversations to the conversations now, in fact, I think I think he literally said on Theories of Everything, um, or sorry, Brian Keaton's podcast with Jim Samivan and Kurt from Theories of Everything, um, that he's learned to talk about it better now um you, you know they, there's pe- people when they get asked about this subject uh, are quick to kind of try and get to the dramatic flair but you really don't need it uh, and i i think tom's kind of come to understand that adding in things that he's uncertain about just just serves to muddy the conversation he seems a lot more focused these days on on where he's going with it which is consciousness right yeah, that, that Brian Keating interview will definitely be discussed as part of part three. It's one of the most recent things that Tom's done on the subject. You mentioned early talk being about positive energy, love, uh, beings and entities feeding on fear, that consciousness is a huge part of the conversation. That's pushed a lot. Um, but Tom says, and I'll quote, there are still physical craft, still spaceships crashing. I was really interested to go back and watch and fool some of those early interviews. And I jumped on to Tom DeLong's appearance on Jimmy Church, Fade to Black from August 2016. And it's it's quite a telling interview. And I'll be fair to Jimmy, he does do some digging on this one and ask some difficult questions that Tom doesn't necessarily seem to like or, or want to answer. One of them being on Fade to Black, how does Tom know that he's next to, not the next Paul Benowitz, a UFO researcher that uh, was famously fed misinformation, as admitted by Richard Doty, and is no longer with us? Tom almost cuts off the question uh, with a no, 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 in response that he's definitely not being used because his answers for me is a little bit 
all over the place that it comes from a, a place of self-confidence rather than any evidence and that he's confident he's being told legitimate information uh, rather than all the people who were fed misinformation because of who he is and what he has done. He talks about stovepipes, that he's got access to all of these small groups within the government. And we've heard in recent years about comp- um, compartmentalization. And he talks about having these stovepipes that lead to smaller groups, that lead to smaller groups, and that he went around banging on the doors, is what he says. And he makes it sound like pretty easy. And Dan, I asked you, surely that had been attempted or done by by other more serious folks in the past, and they've tried to have these conversations. Why does Tom DeLong, famous punk rocker, going about banging on the doors of, of secret government stovepipes, make it? that he's getting more legitimate information and that he's seeming to make as much progress as he he's, he was then. I, I feel like Tom, he came around at the right time knocking those doors. Um, 12th February, 2015, Podesta tweets as he's leaving office. Finally, my biggest failure of 2014, once again, not secure in the disclosure of the UFO files. Hashtag the truth is still out there. And he tags the New York Times. You've also got around this time, um, this was, yeah, 2014, 2015. So we've got the events going on, um, with Gimbal and GoFast and those, the Navy kind of encountering them there. I, I feel like there was an uptick in a lot of talk, an uptick in people wanting to release it. You know, Clinton, oh, sorry, Hillary Clinton now, uh, wanted or was supposed to be, it seems, a, a kind of disclosure president. You know, she, she broached the UAP subject and spoke about it frankly and seriously way before you know any uh, other politician did um and i think tom's along kind of coming into that with a plan to kind of roll out this knowledge really steadily i i think he he was very ideal to head up one of the five pillars that lewin mellon kind of spoke about you know um and one of them would be public engagement and we do it on ufo twitter but you know i do it with art and things like that Tom does it with his art. He just has a huge audience. So, yeah, I think in a lot of ways that he he was just the right person at the right time. There's uh, going to be a separate follow-up to this show where we're going to look at the listener questions and suggestions. So if off the back of this you you want to add anything to this part one, then then let us know, UFO, UAP, AM at gmail.com, or you can tweet us and let us know. But there was there was so much sent in, it's going to be a separate show altogether for the listener suggestions and follow-ups. And as part of that, we'll touch on the Podesta uh, WikiLeaks stuff, but also if Hillary Clinton had been elected, what, what would have changed? And we'll speculate on that a little bit. We just don't want to get away too much from, from Tom DeLong and the profile on him in this part. Now, Tom DeLong, like you say, um, he's been around now, what, six years as a, a name in this field. And again, back then, Tom DeLong claimed, again on the same Jimmy Church show, that UFOs are bad news, deal with it. Now, this is August 2016. And that's a big claim. He seemed to really go on the negative as much as he talked about, you know, love being a force and a power and entities that are, they don't have our best, you know, our best intent at, at their heart and, and why should they necessarily? Jimmy Church mentions a sighting and says it must be a good thing that he was on the beach and, and saw these orbs bouncing about and, and Tom just jumps in with, you know what, it's playing with you and that's bad. 
this reminded me of you know the word somber and and somber sounding that there's a lot of negativity involved and if these ufos are bad news and these things are playing with us why can tom just come out and say that again at that time is this again he has no clearance or do you think he's being fed that as a narrative or is it a totally fair claim I think potentially a bit of both. Um, the, the interesting thing to remember with the Secret Machines books is that Tom didn't write them. Um, with So A.J. Hartley wrote the the kind of the Dan Brown-esque ones with UFO lore kind of folded in. Um, and Peter Lavenda wrote the kind of the documentary style ones, nonfiction. Um, and both of them were allowed to do their own research. Tom just kind of gave a little seed and they kind of went off. And and I found it really intriguing that they came to a lot of the same ideas as, as Tom has and that Tom has spoken about, be it ancient texts or our DNA or, you, you know, what's developed over the years. Um, in, in terms of like a broad sweep of that first Secret Machines book, you know, I won't go into details, but it has, you know, a species that occupies our consciousness and can kind of control life uh, across multiple minds at once, uh, like a hive mind. We we have recovered sources being flown using consciousness, but not everybody can access that kind of control. Um, we have black triangles as countries kind of using the advanced tech and trying to kind of understand it. And then right at the end of the books, you have a tic-tac that comes in and nobody knows where it's from. And that's like, like I say, very broad strokes. Um, because specific events in those books are probably, you know, fictionalized. But I, I thought that was quite interesting that that was what uh, the message that was, was left. Why do you think then at that time, Dan, Tom DeLong is being given the knowledge to plant seeds in books like that? Is it as simple as a few high-ranking officials that Tom bangs on about have they just trust that this is the right guy to start getting this message out. So let's do it now. Like you say, was it timing? And he's been given, it seems like an incredible amount of knowledge. Do you think it's got some mistruths mixed in with it just for good measure to make sure that he's not just finding out all of this good stuff and able to just to go out there with it? Um, I'll quote again that there's a real lack of positivity in early conversations, but Tom says that he's found out and been told that on some planets, human beings pop up and have little balls of light in their mind or hearts, and they get a signal from the core or a god, and that's how the universe works. And he's just coming out and saying, this is what I've been told. We're not getting a whole lot to back that up, but it's not necessarily new information. It's it's things that people had talked about in the, the previous decades, and it's things that other people have talked about since. But why do you think Tom is so trusting of what he's being told? Do you think an element of it is, again, being the kind of person he is, he wants to believe that? Or do you think it's really he's getting some good information off the back of it? I I can imagine that it's probably plausible deniability. You know, if it goes off the rails, they can just say, oh, it's crazy rock star. You know, They're like it's not the same as Lou Elizondo saying a lot of the things that Tom is saying, which he hasn't, you know, there's a lot that he just hasn't backed. Um, and, and you can see the division as well, because the Bob Lazar uh, autobiography was released by uh, a different publishing arm from To The Stars. So that was mm-hmm. kind of separate and not associated. So it, it's interesting that you can see that the information is being separated. Um, 
but there was i part of me wonders do you remember tom spoke about being interrogated for two days yeah uh, because supposedly he had information he wasn't supposed to have um i'll, I'll quote here uh, he, he says i remember when i was doing this early on i was so gung-ho about getting this information out i've got to be a little careful with some of this i got brought into something and they sat me down they said first we need to know who the f you are who the f you're talking to he had a two-day interrogation in a hotel room and it was following that that he said that he didn't sleep for three nights because something was said during that interrogation that scared the bejesus out of him um so i think little events like that make tom confident that what he's got is correct but you're right it might not all be correct right it might be only 10 percent correct and they're actually picking on that one little bit of information that lets them know someone said something to him that maybe they weren't meant to we we talked about this again in, in researching and planning the show we do that from time to time actually plan them don't we and like i say he mentioned on some planets being human beings pop up talks about little balls of light and if the idea is is literally that there are human beings on other planets out there within the, the universe not just other alien species but other human beings like us is that what we hear when we hear mankind's potentially Obviously, when I asked Lou to follow that up way back, it seems like a lifetime ago, in our first interview with Lou, he talked about beings who could see time from a different perspective and and a, a very famous analogy he then gave. But do you think there's also the the potential that our brains are the antenna for, for consciousness from a source? We've talked about it before that maybe the our bodies are just the, the radio receiver and the soul is a signal being sent here to have this experience. And then when you die, it goes away and goes back to source and, and maybe it goes to a different frequency. Maybe, maybe this is a good time to... So in 2019, Angels and Airways did a tour and at the end of the shows, they would play this computerized voice to the audience. Um, and it played... It was just titled The Message. That's what they called it. You, you know, they never had any proper recordings, but you can find uh, fan videos from the gigs. Um, and it says this, just because it plugs into a lot of what you're saying. <clears throat> it says, Hello. We would like you to know that you are part of a grand experiment. It is called humanity. Inside of you, there is something called a soul. It is one piece of a unifying mind. Some call this mind God. Some call it the source, but both are correct. It is light. It is pure love. It is each star born into the infinite blackness of space. Your soul is an antenna that allows you to connect to the light, to all that is known and to all that will be. This connection is strongest during times of pain and heartache, for this is when you shine the most." During this show, your minds have synced up to the same frequencies, to the same electromagnetic patterns. When we are connected like this, we can achieve wonders beyond imagination. We can initiate miracles. Only then can we experience this physical life in the way we were intended to, as a soul in a physical body, using this connection to change the world. I thought that was quite, it kind of summarizes a lot of what Tom talks about around consciousness. Yeah, and and that's where he's kind of got to in his in his journey, and we'll obviously we'll pl- plot a bit more of that as we go through twenty seventeen up to twenty nineteen and and onwards as well. A- another quote from Tom around the same time is, "I'll tell you how it was told to me: the universe is teeming with life. There are beings, beings with psychic powers, bands of light that are alive in space, amoebas as big as Jupiter sucking up energy, and some as big as cars." Again, Tom's dropping this information out there all in one interview is that the best way to go about it or again is this maybe a flaw in having someone like tom who's although he's a a public figure and he's confident he's not he's not a trained speaker to go out and be able to relay this information in a in the best digestible way because in me listening just to one interview in full 
I felt I was taking notes that even though they were they were con- congruent and going one after the other, they weren't necessarily all linked. It was almost like you know, I, someone said to me, "You've got half an hour with Tom DeLong, uh, but he'll tell you anything you want to know." And I just sat down and said, "Tom, go," and he just starts imparting all of this stuff. And he throws it at Jimmy Church. And I think maybe part of the issue is when you're on a show like that, and, and let's let, you've got to compare ourselves to something like Jimmy Church in the sense that we would do something quite similar, I'm sure. We would want all of that information from Tom and follow it up. But then what we can segue into this, Tom goes on to Joe Rogan and tries something similar. And it doesn't uh, that, come off. That was a great appearance. What do you mean? I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> it, was, it was a little awkward, wasn't it? I, I think some some of the parts of it where, where Tom was maybe maligned is where he was trying to use it as an, an example of a video online to say, yeah, this is kind of the way something looks. And it was miscommunicated because of that lack of training that you just mentioned. Uh, he gets quite excited when he's communicating. But I think we can all agree that the TTSA was at its best when Tom was being a vehicle for the voices of the people he shared the room with, people like Jim Semivan, people like Hal Putoff, people like Luis Elizondo and Christopher Mellon, you know? On that mainstream platform, is Tom DeLong, given what he had achieved over those early years and the information he had, and again, you, you can't not bring up the Joe Rogan appearance, is he the best person to be talking about this subject in the way he is? Obviously, there's... He talks about he's being used by design and that he is imparting certain things for certain reasons. Again, he can't go into those those reasons. But that appearance not going well, does it harm the image of the subject? Does it feed the fire of the stigma? Or do you think that it's just something that has to happen for this to go forward and ha- have the, the preceding years justified Tom DeLong and what he said at that time? I, I think they've justified the bits where he says, oh, I can't talk about that because so-and-so, so-and-so told me, you know, the big guns told him, so he can't say it. Um, he has, I suppose, yeah. Do you know what? It, the, the, some of those big guns have come out and we know who yeah, some of the big guns are. Absolutely. Um, the some of the other ones, I'll, I'll just mention some names for people because people might not be familiar with these names. Tom Tom's initial team um, consisted of someone called uh, Major General Neil McCaslin. Um, he's the former head of the Foreign Technology Back Engineering Laboratory at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Um, That's supposedly where the Roswell wreckage was taken and Blue Book was based out of there. So that's real interesting uh, person on his team. We also have Major General Michael J. Carey, uh, the Special Assistant Commander of the Space Force Command at Patterson Air Force Base, Colorado, um, and Robert Weiss, uh, he's the the executive vice vice president and general manager of Aeronautics Advanced Development Programs for Lockheed Martin Skunk Works. I think that's who Tom met at the party initially. So those three people um, are all pretty big hitters, and they seem to be on Tom's A team. Um, those advisors supposedly were who kind of told him off after after the Rogan appearance. Um, he's been said that he was told off and told to pull back, basically, and and Tom did. You know, he he reeled it in a bit. Um, but he's still going around talking about consciousness and things like that. Um, so they, to him, they're clearly part of that core kind of story. Um, in Secret Machines, the idea that's put forth is the idea of a cargo cult, um, which I thought was real, real interesting. <clears throat> I, I had a look around for some kind of anthropology papers because I wanted a good explanation of it. So this is a little bit of a mouthful, but I'll, I'll try and kind of <laughs> do it as I, as I go. Um 
Ekagu cult is any of the religious movements that exhibit belief in the imminence of a new age of blessing uh, to be initiated by the arrival of a special cargo of goods from supernatural sources. But they're actually based on um, the observation by local residents um, of the delivery of supplies to colonial officials. Uh, tribal divinities, culture heroes, or ancestors may be expected to return with the cargo. Um, all the goods might be expected to be passed through visiting foreigners who are sometimes accused of intercepting material goods intended for, the, intended for the natives. If the cargo is expected by ship or plane, symbolic wolves or landing strips and warehouses sometimes built. So you'll have effects where, say, the army will be just doing a resupply drop on an island and the natives on that island see it, basically think that the stuff left behind is gifts from the gods and they'll start mimicking what the visitors were doing i.e building bamboo towers and landing strips even though they don't actually have planes expecting the visitors to come back and secret machines basically alludes to us finding ufo wreckage as a kind of cargo cult where we're being influenced and pulled in a certain direction and do you think, again, if I'm reading that correct, we've got all these megalithic structures throughout the world and even like the pyramids and whatnot, do you think there's been times where these things have been built because we were expecting something that was there for a time to come back and these relics have just been left now over the decades and centuries? I mean, you, you've got to assume that when, you know, something like the pyramid takes a lot of effort to build or whether we're talking about Machu Picchu or any of these kind of incredible sites around the world, you expect something back for your efforts, right? You don't spend energy without getting something out of it. Um, so it does make you wonder, you, you know, a lot of these things were worshipping gods. But as we go back, we can kind of see that maybe the gods kind of weren't who they said they were. Uh, for example, kind of in the in the Mayan texts, the final battle in the kind of the, the town square of the city, before both sides clashed, it says that a UFO appeared overhead and dived into the water, now, you, you could argue it's a meteor or something like that, but a light coming out of nowhere, stationary over between two fields. And then, then we had that kind of, I forget the date, but the Roman chariots and, and the wheels in the sky and things like that. Um, I forgot where I was going with that. <laughs> it sounded good. If only I could remember the ending. That's cool, though. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that that's totally fine. I like that. I mean, people can finish off, finish off that analogy for you if they want, Dan. But <laughs> it's it's an interesting idea. And like I say, I've, I've not read Secret Machines. I've got the audiobooks, and I've got to get to those after probably a, a finished three-body problem at some point this month. But those, again, started with around before Tourist Stars Academy. Safe to say, what happened in your mind then with that team of McCausland and co.? mccasland and co i sound really american if i say mccasland <laughs> that they then seem to be replaced by putov semivan elizondo and others i mean it's wikileaks basically wikileaks happens the connections are legitimate there are names put to the faces instead of just you know the general might be in a diner it's now general neil mccasland um people have tried to follow up and just got nothing from there so you know th those faucets really kind of tightened off but by that point, Tom had already been connected with a lot of different, um, a lot of different people. Um, the general put Tom in touch with like people from doing space work, people intelligence work, biological warfare. Uh, someone wrapping the president of the United States, who may have been uh, Podesta. Uh, Podesta was Clinton's chief of staff, Obama's senior counselor, and Hillary Clinton's campaign manager. So, if she'd won the election, he would have had a position in the White House. So, 
all, all of those connections being solidified, suddenly, you know, John Podesta was associated with all of the the craziest stuff that Tom had said. Um, and that wasn't the plan. The plan was for it to go a certain way. Um, and it, it's amazing that, you know, we've got as far as we have, because technically this is this is plan B. Or at least Tom's plan B, I would say. And part two, we're going to follow up on that plan B as we start to talk about TTSA. I'm saying a lot of letters now, plan B, TTSA. <laughs> and we're going to talk about, you know, what happened from, from 2017. For, for a couple of years, we got unidentified off the back of it. Two amazing series of, of that, to be honest, that I don't think we've had that sort of programming since. Um, we have had Lou Elizondo come out and do numerous numerous interviews off the back of that we've had people like sean cahill who's come into the community obviously been a friend of ours but he's a great speaker on the topic you know he he came out of unidentified and has has meeting up with lou and 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 then pairing up which was fantastic Uh, and we've seen them go on fox news you know good morning america all kinds of shows around the world and carry on this message that in fairness tom started a few years before so for all Tom DeLong is no longer, you know, part of, of that group and that message, he certainly kickstarted it. And I'm really looking forward in part two to digging into that to the Stars Academy age and era that probably burned all too quickly and too brightly uh, and then and then disappeared, didn't it? I still remember doing that show of TTSA is no longer a, a thing that involves Lou and Chris and, and those guys. So uh, we didn't get that anti-gravity craft that we that was promised. No, but I still have the bit of paper with my stocks on. I should probably tell people that I, w- I was an investor. Um, I didn't feel burnt by the whole thing because I was supporting the spreading of the UAP message. Um, I feel like I got my money's worth, I would say. Well, is there anything you're looking forward to discussing then in part two? Uh, mainly the overall kind of theory that Tom's put forward, because there's kind of a hard line of history there that Tom said, you know, this is correct, this is correct, this is correct. I hit my mic again. Sorry about that. Um, and yeah, getting into that theory and kind of talking about it properly would be interesting. I think uh, my guilty pleasure will be looking forward to talking about the Atlantis tweets, um, because I, I remember seeing those back in the back when they originally came out and those are pretty, pretty cool, pretty interesting. Some of the more out there, Tom, ideas that have been floated around. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and we'll talk a little about Plato and Timaeus when we get there, because there are some interesting things in the text and some interesting things to know about Plato that, that aren't spoken about much when you go watch channels like Bright Insight and things like that. Um, and they're well worth knowing. There's going to be a follow up to this part one. Uh, part 1.5 where we're going to have all of your listener questions opinions and thoughts put into that as well and we'll explore some areas that we maybe never touched on we've got a lot of stuff already we'll record that in a few days so if there's anything you want us to follow up on for specifically before 2017 then email it to ufo uapam at gmail.com feel free to drop us a dm but the emails are always easier and much more appreciated as well and we can fill in as much of those we can into the listener section of this profile but i hope you've enjoyed it Uh, something different for us Uh, hopefully you pick up some new info it gives you some new channels to look at some new interviews to search out or not necessarily new stuff old stuff that you you might have missed back in the day as well so dan until next time thank you very much thank you for letting me be a blink 182 nerd uh ufos and blink were two of my passions growing up so uh yeah it's been a pleasure thank you it's always the small things
That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of The little fucker hovered right inside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little Meditated game of fateful on meta. I can't imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like, you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. the window after the elf and I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head and everything was weird and everything was red I called up my boys they thought this was noise they thought it was a dream they thought it was my toys they thought it was my problems and they think I should take care of me and I don't know what it is because it doesn't really scare me